You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. From the author of the book by the same name, it's The Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast with Mark McRae. So Robert Lamb, uh, a lot of his, his duties on He-Man and She-Ra was storyboard artist as well as writer. That's right. I think Robert Lamb and I have been Facebook friends for about three years. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So my first introduction to Robert Lamb came courtesy of the He-Man DVDs that I used to watch. So I knew of him and what he worked on from the DVDs. But uh, I just think that what's cool about PowerCon is that you get to meet people that you may have just been friends with on Facebook. So I'm glad I finally got to meet Robert Lamb in person. You know, one of the things I loved about uh, Mr. Lamb, well, there were about a dozen things I loved about Mr. Lamb. Uh, One was, you know, we we come with a a list of questions and he just hit the ground running. Mm -hmm. He just uh, let us know exactly what what time it was, what was going on uh, from his his point of view back in the day. He not only gave us a great interview, but uh, he cleared up some He-Man history for Dan and I. And now, (laughs) well, anyway... Before I go too far, let's just jump in and and check out his uh, interview. Robert Lamb, everyone. First year I was at Filmation was 1981. Okay. And they were developing this new show called, um, at the time was called The Trollkins. And Hanna-Barbera was making one called The Trollkins. Oh my God. So we changed ours from Trollkins to Trobbits. Okay. Which was renamed Black Star. Oh, interesting. And Black Star's character, you know, those the know dwarf characters are the Trobbits. Interesting thing, and, and I'm, I'm sure you may know about this, but uh, originally that was pitched as uh, the first African American uh, black superhero. Right. And we pitched it, and Lou was very uh, adamant and was, was pushing for it, and they were skittish at CBS. And they said, I don't, we don't think America's ready for a black superhero. And it's, for crying out loud, we've been doing Fat Albert, the Cosby Kids. It wasn't like there, it was, there was no color on, right, in right, uh, kids' right. television. We pushed and pushed and pushed, and they just wouldn't do it. They said, look, you either change it or we're not going to buy the show. Wow. So we kept the name, John Blackstar. Gave him a tan, but he's, he's you know, Anglo. Uh, but on the a, on a plus side... The, the quality we put in that show caught Mattel's attention. And they were looking at uh, doing this Barbarian toy line, which uh, came out of a, a failed attempt to merchandise Conan the Barbarian Conan movies. Barbarian. They brutally rated our movie. Yes. <laughs> yes. So here they had these Barbarian characters, and how are we going to connect this with anything? Uh-huh. They saw Ruby Spears' Thundar the Barbarian. Right. And they saw Filmation's Black Star. Basically, you got a muscle man with a sword in both cases, in in furry underwear. So, said, "Hey, that's kind of like our our toy character." They liked how we did Black Star better than how Ruby Spears did Thundar, and that's what prompted the talks with Lou about this new He-Man toy line that was being developed. And so, if we hadn't done Black Star, if we had dug in our heels and not, you know, and said, okay, well, we'll make the change, uh-huh. and but it gets on the air, 
we wouldn't have gotten He-Man because we wouldn't have had anything like that. So that was, that was a very useful turn of events. And because of what we did with He-Man, we were also able to do Brave Star later in which we could introduce a person of color, a Native American uh, character as, a, as the lead hero. Sometimes you have to be patient, but we did manage to uh, uh, overcome some of those obstacles. It was interesting, the relationship that Lou Scheimer set up with Mattel, and I'm really glad he did. Basically, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically told them, look, we won't tell you how to make toys, you don't tell us how to make cartoons. We are storytellers, we will try to use as many characters that you've created as it seems fit. And some characters only showed up in one episode because they just couldn't do anything with them. They may have been a fine toy, but they didn't work as a... We couldn't figure out what to do with them. So Mattel had no script approval. Now they could say, you know, we'd really like you to try this. And we did from time to time. I remember I was writing a, a, a He-Man script in which I had Beastman and Trapjaw, and I got said, hey, they got this new character called Too Bad. Can, can we use him instead? So I took... <laughs> I took... Uh, Beastman and Trapjaw out, and I had their dialogue between the two heads, which made him a little bit schizo, you know? Right, right. <laughs> you know, like, uh, I say something, and the other head says, I wasn't there. Go, right. Well, yes, you were there. But, right. yeah. but I had fun with it. And uh, right. so we did try to accommodate on occasion where we could. But it, it worked out, and of course, the, the show did very well. Right. And I heard from other uh, studios uh-huh. that uh, they didn't have such a sweetheart deal. For example, on G.I. Joe, Hasbro had complete script authority, and they had some mandates. They said, look, we want as many many of our toy characters on the screen at all times, and if the gang goes from point A to point B, they need to use at least three vehicles. But they're just going down to the corner. Three vehicles, including a ship. I'm exaggerating there, but that was the kind of control. They they were trying to produce 30-minute commercials. We were highly resistant and said, look, we're going to make He-Man and Masters of the Universe based on this toy line, but we're telling stories and we want to do pro-social themes that, that are good for kids, not just to sell your toys. Right. We got accused of doing commercials anyway, but, but that was not what we were trying to do. Right. And, and, you know, and I'm really glad that you said that because like, a lot of times I feel I have to, because being a fan and you know, my relationship you know, with the with Lou and, and company, I feel like, okay, do you guys actually watch He-Man and the Masters of the Universe? It is not a 30 second, it's not a 30 minute commercial, you know? And there's definitely a lot more meat and potatoes to the story. So I'm, I'm really happy that you distinguished between a He-Man toy show versus a G.I. Joe toy show. It's, it's important. Do you like podcasts? Then you're gonna hate Thunder Talk. Tasteless subject matter. Mature humor. Contempt for our co-hosts. Unapologetic social views. Edgy music. And total irreverence for the nerd junk we love. Are all reasons why no one. No one. No one should listen to Thunder Talk. Find us on the ESO Network. And all podcasting platforms. Or don't. Whatever. I know we just jumped into the conversation and everything, but I wanted to know why did you want to become an animator and was there a particular show or an influence that made you want to become an animator and get you into the business? 
Yes, I started out as a kid glued to the TV on Saturday morning television. There wasn't much in syndication. It was really Saturday morning. Loved Johnny Quest and all kinds of things. And I was introduced to Filmation's stuff with the Adventures of Superman back in the 60s. And, you know, Batman and the Superman Aquaman Hour and all that. They also did Fantastic Voyage, Journey to the Center of the Earth. A lot of action adventure. They also did the Archies and all that. So I was a fan of that stuff. And I loved it, but at the time as a kid, I remember I wanted to be a cartoonist. I either wanted to do like newspaper comic strips like Peanuts or comic books like Superman and Captain America and all that. So those were the typical kid stuff. It wasn't until I was in high school and I saw a reissue of Disney's Sleeping Beauty and the artwork just blew me away. I mean, the story was nice, but it was the artwork. I sat through a screening twice. That was before they kicked you out of the theater in those days. This would have been about like 1969, 1970. And I just was enthralled with it. And I started drawing. Uh, I remember we had moved at that time. And so I hadn't, in the new neighborhood, I had no friends. So I had a lot of time on my hands. And I started drawing and I was drawing my own fairy tale castles and sorcerers and things like that. And I wasn't that good at an artist, but I found I was drawing one hour a day, two hour a day. By the end of summer, I was drawing eight hours a day, and my drawing got better just from practice. And so I go, I think this is what I want to do. And so I wanted to go to art school. I wanted to develop that. Move ahead to, you know, college days. I moved from Phoenix, Arizona, where I was living, to Los Angeles to go to art school in Pasadena at the Art Center College of Design. Actually, I had applied at Disney and I was uh, interviewed by Ed Hansen who was the uh, president of of Disney Animation at the time and when I walked into the studio I looked around I knew my stuff was nowhere near their level but he was so kind and he looked at my stuff and he said okay I can see where you know that you want to do this but what you need to do is get a command of the human form you need to take life drawing and I said well should I take animation class he goes no no we can teach you that but you, but you need to have a real strong command of the human form, of weight and balance and action and all these things. And he showed me examples. I went, uh, he really took some time, which he didn't have to do. And so, uh, yeah, I was disappointed I didn't get the job right off the bat. But, um, and I said, well, should I go to uh, Cal Arts Because that was their school. Well, this was in the 70s. At that time, they were, Cal Arts was kind of taking an avant-garde turn and moving away from traditional right. stuff that Disney wanted. And he said, actually, I think you'd be better off going to the Arts Center in Pasadena. Right. And I go, to take film classes? No, do not take any film classes. Just take life drawing. And he kept pounding that in my head. So I did that. And then I... Br- immediately ran out of money so I ended up being a busboy in the school cafeteria during the day and taking night classes at this art center just the life drawing classes and I got some chops there and I went back tried to get in Disney they weren't hiring at that time I tried about three different times I never could get in there move ahead I had to work and I was working at an art supply store Aaron Brothers Art Marts I think they're owned by Michaels now right I worked at a few different stores, and I was working in the Studio City store, and Bob Klein, one of their top artists, came in to get some stuff for him, and I could see he had animation stuff, and I immediately asked him about it. And it turned out that they were in need of storyboard artists. 
Now, the way I heard is that you had to work your way up from a lowly in-betweener all the way up before you could ever get to story. Right. But I figured, okay, so I'm, I did a, a quick sample storyboard on a sketchbook, and he gave me the name of Carl Gears, who was the uh, uh, supervisor at the time. Got an interview, went in there, and he looked at my stuff. He goes, this is pretty good stuff. you got some screen direction problems, but overall, it looks like you know how to tell a story. And so he, he gave me a, a, a Lone Ranger script and said, and I said, you want me to storyboard this? And he goes, no, 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 that's too much. Just to, and he circled one line. He says, I want you to give me as many camera angles of this one line. And it was Lone Ranger delivering bad news to a farmer who was going to lose his farm. Uh, some, you know, wow. sh shady yeah. land grab deal. And the line was this. The farmer's shoulders slumped in resignation. And I said, okay. So I staged it on the front porch and, and Lone Ranger here, Tonto there, and the, and the farmer sitting on the porch all dejected. And I did close-ups. I have cans ringing. He gave me some storyboard paper with nine panels on a page. And I filled that page in about 20 minutes with different angles. And I go, okay, well, there's, there's no way I'm going to get a job with nine panels. So I took another sheet of paper and I did another nine. I, I put them inside the house with him leaning on the fireplace a mantle and all, as many as I could think of. Right. And then I called Carl up, but I said, okay, I got it. He goes, I can't see you today. It was the same day. Right. And he says, come back tomorrow. I said, okay. I come back tomorrow and I hand him the two sheets of paper. He looks at it, takes one look at it. Didn't even look at them deeply. Just looked at it and said, you're hired. Wow. I said, you're kidding. Right. He said, the most I've ever gotten from what I just gave you is three panels. You gave me 18. You can start Monday. Huh. And I went, wow. Then the producer, Don Christensen, comes in. Yes, I heard of that. In a Hawaiian shirt and Bermuda shorts, right? And, and he hands the, the story, my, my test to Don and says, here's the guy I was telling you about. And I go, he was talking to the producer about me? Mm -hmm. uh, and Don looks at my sheet and he, goes, he says, well, I can see what you're saying. The guy sure knows film. And he goes, he can't draw worth a crap. <laughs> and I'm just dying there. I went, oh, I'm done. And he goes, but yeah, he knows film and we need storyboard artists. Eh, hire him if you want to. And he left. Just like that. Just like that. And I'm going, I think he enjoyed that. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so uh, Carl said, well, you've kind of put me in a pickle. I think you can do the job, but you're going to have to get better on your, on your uh, draftsmanship. So I'm going to uh, put you on probation. Uh, you work for two weeks, and at the end of two weeks, we'll see if you if you come up to what we need, the minimum of what we need. I said, well, that's fair enough. I appreciate the opportunity. So I did that. I came in the next Monday, blah, blah, and I worked uh, under Don Manuel, who was a, a really accomplished storyboard artist, and, and cleaned up his roughs. He didn't like my cleanups, and he re recleaned them up, but I gradually I got a little bit better. And then I walked in on the Friday of the second week thinking, okay, it was nice. They're going to can me now. And I said, well, Carl, do I come back in Monday? And he said, well, sure. Why wouldn't you? Goes, well, I, I have, you said two weeks. And he goes, oh, oh, you would have known a long time ago if you weren't going to make it. I go, ah. And so I, I, was, I stayed on through the 81 season working on the new adventures of Zorro, uh, Hero High, and Shazam. Okay. And I'll tell you something, drawing 40 hours a week for five months straight, I was the worst of all the storyboard artists. My, my draftsmanship was really poor. 
but seeing everybody else's work and learning from them and that much practice, I got better. So by the end of the season, I was not the worst. I was kind of somewhere in, somewhere in the middle. That was 81. So in the, uh, 82, there wasn't much going on. But in 83, when He-Man came on, I was hired back for the storyboard staff. Wow. So yeah. got in by the skin of my teeth. Yeah, right. <laughs> had, the, had the overwhelming fear that I was going to be discovered and be booted out as yeah. a fraud. Yeah, but, right. Yeah. Foster syndrome. That was a great story. I love that story. Yeah. And uh, it's just really interesting because I feel like animation professionals should hear that. You had the talent, but it wasn't necessarily easy to get in. You still had to constantly prove yourself. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's that's important. And you each time you, you raise yourself to the next level, which is, is just, you know, great and fantastic and some reinvention in there as well. Well, I, I learned some lessons. Perseverance pays off. And it may not have worked under different circumstances at a different studio. Filmation was a unique thing, and at the time, they needed hands-on uh, as much. There, were, there weren't enough storyboard artists available at that time, and a number of us, me, a few others, this was our first introduction into it. We were all apprentice storyboard artists that season. And so, uh, you know, I, I thank the dear Lord for the opportunity we, yes. that Amen. It, uh, it got me in. And you know, I, I never did get into Disney. But the time at Filmation turned out to be really great. The time doing He-Man and She-Ra, Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids, um, even Filmation's Ghostbusters. That, you know, that, that was a lesser series, but we did some fun stuff with that. And then Bravestar. And here we are at PowerCon, and the fruits of our labors are just everywhere. And who, who would have known back then that, that it would turn, in, turn out like this? Now, there's a postscript to this. After Filmation closed... There just wasn't enough openings at the other studios for 400 people. I was in talks with, with uh, Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera to go over there, but that didn't work out. And I ended up saying, you know, I think it's time for a change of scenery and maybe a change of career and, and move from uh, Los Angeles to Nashville. Right. But within about a year, I started getting phone calls for uh, different studios where my friends were working. They needed some extra storyboards. So I started doing storyboards long distance and FedExing the boards. And then one day I got a call from Disney and said, we need some help on this new show called Dark Queen Duck. Oh. I go, you do? Well, I said, yes, because one of our guys is on his honeymoon, another guy is on vacation, another guy is sick, and we have a deadline. Can you pick up a job? I said, yes. Well, we can't just give it to you. You have to take a test first. So I had to do a, a storyboard test on, on a tailspin script, worked for a week doing that, sent it off. And they said, okay, you can do this, you can do, um, uh, this Dark Green Duck script. And they sent me all this stuff, and, I, and they wanted all my roughs first. So I sent all my roughs there, Xeroxing them so right. I had a, a copy in case it got lost. Right. It comes back from Tad Stones, the director, with post-it notes all over the place. And I thought, oh my goodness, he hates it. I, I've been discovered. I am a fraud. And I called him up, I said, Tad, I am so sorry. I have never seen so many revisions in my life. And he goes, what are you talking about? Everybody here hates you. I go, what do you mean? You got the least revisions of anybody here on staff. <laughs> you had whole pages where I didn't put post-it notes. Right. I went, wow. <laughs> so, and it just goes, I was 13 years in LA, never made it into Disney. I get out and I get a Disney job and I didn't have, have it on my resume as a, a, being a Disney artist. Go. 
So who that knows? Cool, right? so, the uh, Lord works in mysterious ways, yeah. doesn't yes, he? Yes, he does. And he had to kind of carve out some time. You know, this would be a good time for Rob Lamb to work at Disney. This, you know, yeah, so he had, to, he had to make that situation happen, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's just awesome. Tell I mean, me. that's, that's great. The next evolutionary leap in the Thunderverse has arrived. The Ring of Thunder is a whole week's wrestling in a half hour. What? The Ring of Thunder is a whole week's wrestling in a half hour. What? Every show. What? 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 You come up around here wetting in sexy Thor's yard like he's anything but the hammer swinging, burrito eating, mic blazing, marking out but never tapping out Lord of Thunder. Like you would do anything but sit down, open your ears, and take in the Ring of Thunder wherever you find your podcast like you would find any other podcast in the Thunderverse or the ESO network. It's great that you were able to work at Disney after trying early, early in your career to get in, and then it kind of happening when you weren't expecting it. Yes, when I wasn't even trying. Mm-hmm. And so that just amazed me. Yeah. And postscript to the, to the filmation days was finding out about He-Man fandom. I've only seen this kind of fandom in properties like Star Trek, Star Wars, certain comic book things, and so on. Certainly none of the, the cartoons from my childhood ever garnered that kind of fandom. Usually, right. you know, people had favorites, but they, they didn't have right. this. Right. This has been amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, in my opinion, is Filmation's most successful series. But in my opinion, I wasn't surprised because Filmation sort of quietly beat the competition. They didn't brag about it. They just came up with new concepts and knew what trends were coming. So the fact that He-Man and the Masters of the Universe just blew up into this giant thing, I'm not surprised. I'm like, if you've been making hit content from 1966 through the 80s, you know something about hit content. And one of those shows that you make is just going to blow up bigger than any other show in your studio. And He-Man and the Masters of the Universe did that for Filmation. It was the perfect combination of the story content and the toys and merchandise. It was because the kids would expand upon what they saw in the show when they would play with the, with the toys. And that's what I think really sent that affection deep and lasted all that time. And so they wanted to keep those things, collect them, and if they had gotten rid of them, or their parents got rid of them, when they're adults, they wanted to get those things back because it, was, it meant something to them. Now, at the time, we were, uh, we were also battling uh, criticism about violence in, in children's programming. And so uh, one of the things we had to do was be very sensitive about having things that were too violent. There was a lot, they were criticizing Roadrunner cartoons and Tom and Jerry. And here we had Barbarians with Swords, like you said, R-rated Conan, the, the movie, they were expecting us to be bloodletting and, and, and doing everything that Kevin Smith did in the new one. <laughs> and Lou said, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're, and we're going to teach good, uh, good lessons, good moral lessons. We did those 30-second uh, tags at the end to emphasize that. So that blunted that argument that these things were going to uh, incite violence in children. But... Um, because we had those restrictions in the action side, we couldn't just have people punch their lights out and stick swords in each other. We had to develop character more. We had to come up with actual storylines that had more going on it than just hack and slash. You know, and sometimes, sometimes restrictions actually help you be more creative. 
than having absolute freedom. You know, it's so true. And especially, I always feel like as an animator, sometimes if you do have all the bells and whistles, the challenges are not there. But when you don't have all the bells and whistles, it, it, you have to think out of the box and think about, okay, I don't have all the money in the world to animate this scene, but what can I do to move the story along and still do something cool? For us, it was off-screen crashes with a camera shake. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Save yeah, yeah, yeah. life. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't see the violence, but, but it shakes the camera but, and you hear the boom. Right. You know, but then there's episodes um, like, uh, what is it, Green? Oh, my gosh. It was like a villain that He-Man and Skeletor had to fight together. He was green. He was like a, a plant creature. Evil seed. Evil seed. Yes. Oh my gosh, that's such a great episode. That Evil is. seed episode, and it's really cool to see like all the anime, all the cool extra shots and animation to make you know to make things more fuller. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like those those I moments. Loved, I loved the ending when. Evil Seed is defeated, yeah. and he almost has this soliloquy, almost Shakespearean death scene. Yes. You know, it was my season, <laughs> and all this. It's lovely. Yes. Yes, it's 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 an awesome episode. Like uh, sometimes I do college lectures, mm-hmm. animate animation on a shoestring budget, and I like showing scenes from limited animation where the director did something a little extra than what you would normally see during the episode. And uh, there's a lot of filmation productions like that. And I just think it's cool because I feel like animators that worked in limited animation at the time, you get all this criticism, but you really have to look at cartoons. It's like people, directors, people that work in the industry are not, they were not phoning it in back in the day. If there was an opportunity to do something really cool in animation, whether it's 20 seconds at a time or whatever, you made it happen. Yes, we did. In fact, sometimes we try to slip things in. <laughs> in my first year, I was working on, uh, on Hero High, and there was a scene where some of the characters are, are kidnapped and, and, and uh, uh, kept in a hideout, and you have the thugs, and, and the script called for them to be playing cards, a very you know stereotypical right. thing. And I said, no, I think I'm going to have them playing jacks. So I had Jax there, and I, and I just called for a very simple animation of uh, the, one of the thugs just kind of flipping a ball up, kind of like the old flipping the silver dollar. Oh, yeah. Something could be cycled real easy and be kind of interesting. The director loved it. The animator loved it. And what it is, okay, he's not only going to do that, he's going to bounce the ball, pick up the jacks, catch the thing. So huh. I was thinking economical. Right. And... The director and the animator plussed it. Lou thought it was hilarious. And that was not in the script. That was just something I threw in just to be a little bit right. little yeah. bit different there. Right. But we you know, we tried to do those things and, and you know, it, yeah. it worked out. That's great. That is great. These stories were wonderful. Where can we find you? Yeah. You have a website. The great Rob Lamb here at no, PowerCon. No, no. You can tell the folks. I will. Where can we find you out there on the internet? Well, you can find me on Facebook at you know, Rob Lamb. Okay. Uh, I, my website is robertartwriter.com. Okay. And actually, a lot of the things I told you are on there with pictures oh. and examples. Okay. I, I, cool. I, it's kind of my memoirs of filmation. 
And so take a look at uh, robertartwriter.com and you'll find out some more about uh, what it was like at Filmation. Okay, so when I go on your website, I'm probably going to have more questions for you. One of the cool things that came out of the interview was that 10 minutes before we walked over to talk to Robert Lamb about interviewing as part of the Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast, Dan and I were talking about the whole mystery surrounding why Mattel went with Filmation versus Ruby Spears, which had Thundada Barbarian, which was like a bigger show than Filmation's Black Star. But it was cool that uh, Robert Lamb was able to reveal that Ruby Spears production was in the running as well to possibly produce a He-Man series. And so now I have to go back and, and change the presentation. Oh, well, there you go. Robert Lamb giving you, giving you a few more chores to do. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So great interview, and it was really great to be able to meet Robert Lamb in person and have a conversation about his career and unlocking some of those secrets that uh, that Dan and I seek. Yeah, in fact, Robert had even told us that uh, we were doing we were doing good work. We were doing good work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Made me feel good. It was a great compliment, and it may, and it just yeah. reinforces the fact that uh, we should continue doing what we do. Yeah, totally, totally. Hey, uh, hey, uh, Mr. Lamb, we love you. Right. Welcome to Doctor Geek's laboratory. Dr. Geek here with another reminder that the ESO Network is pro-science and pro-vaccine. We urge you to be a superhero and protect yourself, your family, and your fellow geeks around the world. Don't be fooled by the forces of evil and their anti-science misinformation campaign. Consult the latest CDC guidelines, your doctor, and get the COVID vaccine today. The ESO Network is proud to announce that our official charity this year is Pops for Patients, a toy donation cause that collects, donates, and distributes Funko Pop figures to children's hospitals all year round. They have donated tens of thousands of Pops since they started in August of 2016. That's a lot of much-needed smiles to sick kids across the country. For more information on how you can help contribute, go to popsforpatients.org. Robert Lamb had on one of the raddest t-shirts I've ever seen in my life. It was an Orco shirt. Uh, you remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, yeah. it had you could, like Orco's disembodied hands floating over mm -hmm. the Orco logo as though he was about to bust out on some magic. I think uh, Robert had said that was you could find that over at RetroRags.com. Right. That was probably one of the... One of the in the top 10 coolest shirts I've ever seen in my life. It was it was super cool. And a really cool way to represent uh, He-Man. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, well, everyone, this concludes our cycle of interviews from PowerCon this year. We want to thank Michael Swanigan, Larry Houston, Tom Tarawanowicz, and Robert Lamb, today's guest, for, for hitting the microphone with us. Again... Once I saw who the guest list was of professionals, I just felt like it was the all-star league of animators that uh, Dan and I would have the pleasure of talking to. Yeah. I feel like it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get all these guys at the same time and to talk animation and to talk programming strategy and to also be able to help people that are trying to get into the animation industry, you know, give them some tips 
And what was cool is that there was one common thread. Draw as much as you can. Draw, draw, draw. Right. They all said it. They yeah. all said it. And also being able to come to conventions and connect with animation professionals and show yeah. them your work and get some insight and get some advice. So while Robert Lamb said that we're doing the good work, I feel like those guys are as well. Absolutely. Just by sharing their knowledge and being able to help folks. That's right. Who are, who are trying to uh, make a career in the animation industry. Oh, yeah, just how nurturing and accommodating all of them were. Mm-hmm. It was a real pleasure, a real treasure to spend time with all of them, for mm-hmm. sure. Right. So join us uh, next time on The Best Centers of Our Lives, where I think we're going to be going back to our every other week schedule. Right. I know we've been spoiling all of you good people out there with these <laughs> back-to-back-to-back interviews. We certainly had fun, and uh, thank you for, for your con- continued... Uh, Friendship of the show. The Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast is a co-production of the Best Saturdays of Our Lives studios and the Weirdos Workshop. To get a personalized signed copy of the Best Saturdays of Our Lives book, go to thebestsaturdaysofourlives.com. This is Mark McRae signing off. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.